0: The United States, like many other Western nations, has a history accented with great achievements that broke down barriers to the future. These same histories are also bloated with an array of catastrophic failures that are lessons for the ages. For centuries, foreign policy has been the cornerstone to America's prominence on the world stage. What once was a predominantly isolationist precedent has now transformed into an overly hawkish tendency. Whether it be through direct involvement with the enemy or power contests conducted through proxy states, the U.S. has made itself both friend and foe to the nations of the world. While well, just a minute part of its history, one particular nation has tugged at not only the U.S.'s coffers, but also its news channels' chirons and citizens' attention. Join me, Michael Popa, this week as I explore with you over the next few pieces the deep roots that America and its allies have in Afghanistan and the surrounding region. Today we'll look at the evolution of Afghanistan throughout the 20th century, particularly focusing on the country's involvement with Soviet Russia. I'm Michael Popa, and this is Deep Roots. After over 100 years of war, including civil wars and the Anglo-Afghan wars we talked about last time, Afghanistan was finally ready to build back. With the new leader, Zahir Shah, taking hold in 1933 and continuing a friendship with the Bolshevik regime in Russia, the region would be able to hold steady for almost the next half century, including sweeping economic reform and official recognition as a state by the U.S. As Afghanistan continued to develop and modernize, other leaders like Shah's cousin and newly elected Prime Minister Mohammad Daud Khan instituted social reforms as well, including allowing women more rights such as the ability to work and attend college. As part of the country's new growth and reform, Khan looked to the country's communist ally, Soviet Russia, to aid in economic and military development. Nikita Khrushchev, the Soviet premier, agreed to help, further bolstering the two countries' relationship. Playing into the long-held desires of Russia to inseminate the region with communist influence, Afghanistan allowing such significant economic and military aid allowed Russia to do just that. With murmurings of and growing communist sentiments beginning to spread throughout the nation, the Underground Afghanistan Communist Party, or the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan, known as the PDPA, officially formed under the leadership of Babrak Karmal and Nur Muhammad Taraki in 1965. Babrak Karmal and Nur Muhammad Taraki would come to be the two very substantial characters in the development of a communist Afghanistan. As a student at Kabul University, Karmal was introduced to Marxist ideology and began undertaking the organization of pro-communist political activities. After a five-year stint in prison for his Marxist demonstrations, serving in the Afghan army, and completing his law degree, he served in the National Assembly, Afghanistan's main legislative body that recently collapsed on August 21, 2021, with the fall of Kabul, from 1965 to 1973. Kremal's friend and close associate, Taraki, however, was not as involved in Afghanistan's political world. His only political experience was an appointment to act as an attaché in the Afghan embassy in Washington, D.C. in 1953. It wasn't until Shah implemented a new domestic and foreign policy in 1963 that Taraki entered politics. The new policy tried to radically transform the country to a more Western style of government and view of human rights. Shah drew a new constitution for the country, offering freedom of speech, expression, and assembly, rights that he declared would no longer be restricted by the royal family. The constitution also set up democratic elections for the National Assembly. Over a 10-year period, from 1963 to 1973, dubbed, quote, the Decade of Democracy, unquote, Afghanistan took quite kindly to both political and cultural revolution. Women were not required to wear burqas and could often be found wearing western-style dress, were able to gather and organize publicly, and all Afghans could be found idolizing their favorite movie actors and actresses in a similar fashion as U.S. citizens. Not everybody was enthralled by this change, though. The radical policy implemented by Shah created much distension in the PDPA, which split in 1967 into two factions, the People's Faction and the Banner Faction. Led by the party's deputy secretary, Kamal, the Banner faction supported the older pro-Soviet relationships inspired by Khan to gradually turn Afghanistan to socialism. however, the People's faction led by the party's general secretary Taraki was a large supporter of the idea of mass organization and class struggle to overthrow the new democratic government. Now given the rich and nuanced history of Afghanistan and we've just started to scratch the surface of I asked Dr. Austin Nuppy from the Utah State University Department of Political Science to join me on this project To help expound on the intricacies of this region here's some of his thoughts from our interview. Dr. Nuppy, thank you for coming. Um, You know, kind of talking about 9-11 again and our involvement there in the past 20 years. um, Lots of people try and make issues like, you know, past 20 years after 9-11, cut and dry or black and white. You know, we never should have gone. We should stay there indefinitely. Um, Obviously between Northern communist influence, pressure from Britain and other Western nations to let them control their foreign policy uh, and a deep rooted regional tie to Islam. There's a lot going on over there uh, that could quite obviously make it not such a simple task to instill peace and uh, maintain stability in the region. So. Is there like a certain element about Afghanistan that people don't always understand when it comes to foreign policy? And what do people have a hard time understanding about the region?
1: That's a great question. I think from a U.S. perspective, um, we went in under the auspices of security concerns, right? We knew that Al-Qaeda and other Islamist uh, insurgent groups were using uh, Afghanistan as a safe haven because it's what we call a fragile state. So uh, it's it's a country that's had a... um, underdeveloped economy, lots of uh, local political violence between warring uh, factions, tribes, criminal elements, and historically um, in the past has had monarchies and actually has had somewhat of a centralized state. It's not always been what we refer to as a fragile or failing state, but lacks a certain internal cohesion or internal capacity. So you may have a, a government that's represented in the capital of Kabul, but they don't maintain or are unable to govern the entire country, right? It's a country that is mountainous, has really a rough um, intimidating geography, difficult place to govern, even if you had a functioning legitimate government, a functioning economy, uh, uh, an effective military, etc. With those things lacking, then it provides an opportunity for um, uh, militant groups then to operate within those bounds. And so the US went in uh, under the auspice of, of terrorism, rightfully so, but we failed to understand uh, a lot of the internal political, socioeconomic developments that made that estate uh, uh, hospitable for, for Islamist groups. Um, and we failed to learn the lessons of the past in that um, regardless of a great power's good intentions, how much state building they wanna do in terms of development, providing security for civilians, uh, facilitating uh, legitimate democratic elections, uh, the longer you stay, and particularly the longer you have a military presence, it's, only, it's an inevitable fact that you'll be perceived by locals as a military occupier. And people don't like being occupied, right, as a matter of uh, as a matter of fact. And so um, it was only a matter of time before uh, Afghans realized that even though the United States and its NATO partners had a massive military presence, massive economic presence, development uh, efforts, uh, they were going to go home at some point. And who the civilian population was going to have to deal with was either the central government in Kabul, which was weak, or the Taliban insurgency.
0: So, you know, you've mentioned fragile states a couple times in this idea that there's, you know, some nations and some states out there that aren't uh, inherently capable of sort of uh, stabilizing themselves and have a really a hard time maintaining a functioning government. Um, what are some other states that we might be familiar with that are also fragile and uh, what are some of the qualifications that you could uh, look for to recognize what a fragile state might be?
1: That's a great question. You know, it's one of these um, terms or categories that has an inherently relative reference point, right? It's like re- <laughs> fragile relative to what? Um, When we think about what makes states function, it's their ability to govern, which is to legitimately uh, represent the people, but also provide public goods and services, right? So not only do they have functioning institutions, but can they provide economic opportunity, safety and security, um, roads, right, sanitation, uh, all these things that are really uh, foundational for states to to function. So when we talk about a fragile state, it has some deficit. either in its ability to govern legitimacy, that that is to maintain legitimate political authority, or to provide basic goods and services to the civilian population um, within the state. And so, um, unfortunately, um, Afghanistan, it's in Central Asia, but it's nearby quite a few of these states that uh, are fragile with respect to what we've talked about. So you can think about a place like Iraq, certainly Syria, certainly uh, Libya in North Africa or Yemen in the Persian Gulf. Absolutely.
0: During our interview, we obviously talked a lot about Afghanistan's geographical and political importance, but we also chatted about modern influences and power struggles in the region. So, if you like what you heard, make sure to go to our channel at Aggie Radio for the full-length interview. The tension created by the antagonistic views not only split the PDPA, but the country too. In 1973, frustrated by the new Western system that was harming Soviet relations, Khan succeeded with a peaceful coup and overthrew his cousin Shah and the rest of the monarchy, ending the quote, decade of democracy, unquote. Khan, now the country's first president, wasn't able to keep his favor with the Communist banner faction for long, though, as he, too, tried to modernize the state and offer women rights. The two PDPA factions, Soviet pressure not withheld, rejoined in 1977. With the help of the Soviets in 1978, Taraki expelled Khan from power and became president and prime minister of Afghanistan, with Kermal serving as his deputy prime minister. This second coup, known as the Saur Revolution, resulted in Khan's death and ended the monarchical rule of Afghanistan, beginning a new era of presidents and prime ministers, Taraki being the first. Wanted to continue their allyship with, yet acted independently of, the Soviet Union, the new government declared independence from the USSR, but maintained another friendship treaty with the communist nation. Taraki and Karmal wanted to rule the country with Islamic foundations and socioeconomic justice in mind. But, even with the new, independent government, the country was fracturing yet again. Taraki begot a rivalry with his political opponent and Deputy Prime Minister Hafizullah Amin, organizer of the Saar Revolution that killed Khan in 1978, and Islamic traditionalists who have for a long time been opponents of Khan's social reform began an armed revolution in rural Afghanistan. Sprouting from this revolt was the Mujahideen, a guerrilla movement tasked with defeating the communist government. To make matters worse, American ambassador Adolf Dubbs was killed after his kidnapping in 1979, resulting in the U.S. cutting off aid to the country, Tensions between Taraki and Amin worsened and Taraki was killed by Amin's supporters. Just a few months later, in an attempt to stabilize the region again, the USSR invaded Afghanistan and executed Amin just a few days later. Karmal ascended to the seat of prime minister, but widespread opposition to the communist leader and the USSR invasion set off another series of revolts and the Mujahideen strengthened their position against the leftist government. By 1982, over 3.5 million Afghans had fled the country to neighboring Pakistan and Iran. In a gridlock of sorts, the Mujahideen and other Afghan revolutionaries maintained control of the countryside while the Soviet troops maintained superiority over the cities, including the capital, Kabul. By this point, the United States had gotten involved by means of arming the Mujahideen through Operation Cyclone, part of a larger effort to prevent the USSR from spreading its influence into Europe, the Middle East, and Southwest Asia. As a result of the continuing war and occupation of Afghanistan, Osama bin Laden and a group of his followers formed al-Qaeda, meaning the base, in the fall of 1988 in an attempt to bolster their efforts against the occupying USSR. Bin Laden called their fight a jihad, meaning a holy war, in response to the Soviets trying to rule in a way antithetical to a government led by pure Islamic principles. Bin Laden blamed the Soviet invasion and result in American involvement for the country's instability, calling America the one obstacle to the establishment of an Islamic state. With the Soviet Union disintegrating in 1989, it couldn't afford to continue its involvement with its southern neighbor. Having signed a peace accord in Geneva with the U.S., Pakistan, and Afghanistan, the Soviet army withdrew 100,000 troops from Afghanistan, leaving their appointed puppet president Mohammad Najibullah and the Afghan army to take on the American-funded revolution led by Shabatullah Mojadidi alone. In an effort to take control of the unstable situation, the Mujahideen took over Kabul and threw Najibullah out under the direction of Ahmad Shah Massoud, but then Mujahideen was beginning to see issues within its own quarters. Despite creating a new Islamic state led by Burhanuddin Rabbani, Rabini, regional leaders disagreed over how to lead a new Afghanistan. Bying for control of the country and taking advantage of the disunity, the Taliban ascended to power in 1995. Swearing that they would be able to achieve a long-desired peace in the region and return the country to Islamic ways, a tired and fraught Afghan populace happily let the Taliban assume control of the country and its government for the next five years. Join me next time as we explore the events that led to the attacks on September 11, 2001 and the United States War in Afghanistan. We'll discuss the rise and fall of the Taliban, NATO efforts to control an unstable country, and how the recent pullout will leave big questions for the next generation to answer. I'm Michael Popa, and this is Deep Roots. Like what you heard? Make sure to like and subscribe and leave a five-star review if you want to hear more. You can find me on Instagram at michael.popaii. You can also find the Utah Statesman on Instagram and Twitter at Utah Statesman. Or you can pick up our newspapers on campus and online at utahstatesman.com. This show is brought to you by the Utah State University Student Media. Copyright Utah Statesman 2021.